What happened after Swedenborg published the work's survey? A lot more than he anticipated. We trace the evidence and connect the dots of what was perhaps the most intense time of Swedenborg's theological career. He had high hopes for the small work survey, but he got even more than he bargained for. We witness Swedenborg responding to a changing landscape and making decisions that would have ripple effects throughout society in the centuries to come, right now, inside Off the Left Eye. It is February 1769, and Swedenborg has just published Survey. <clears throat> its full title is Survey of Teachings of the New Church Meant by the New Jerusalem in the Book of Revelation. It's the short interim work which he published ahead of True Christianity in anticipation of that longer work, which included a draft outline for it. And intriguingly, it also included 25 points of discordance between new church teachings and the Christian theology that was being taught in his day. We learned from his letter to the Swedish statesman Anders Johan van Hupken that the book caused a splash in heaven, saying that when it was finished, the whole heaven was seen covered in beautiful purple roses. And from his letter to his friend, Dr. Gabriel Beyer, we learned that he anticipated it serving to clear the way for people to access and connect to what he calls the new church. What this new church is, he defines in survey as the marriage of faith and goodwill. Survey paragraph number 68, the marriage of faith and goodwill is the new church that is now being established. The points of discordance all look toward this definition of the new church and hinge on the importance of repentance, of living according to what God teaches, resisting evil and doing good, the spiritual physics, if you will, of how spiritual growth really works. The emphasis on repentance is so strong, it seems to have affected his own understanding and clarity about it, since the ultimate work, true Christianity, has a chapter on repentance added to it whereas there's not a chapter on repentance listed in the draft outline of it given in survey. Friends of his were nervous for him to embark on publishing survey. They even tried to dissuade him from following through on it on account of the danger he would be putting himself in by publishing it. But he does it anyway. He publishes survey in Latin in Amsterdam in February of 1769. And what he doesn't know is that the next three years of his life, which would be his last, would be dominated by just such a response that his friends were afraid would happen. But it doesn't happen the way they had expected. The very next month after he published Survey, on March 22, 1769, the Reverend Doctor and Dean Olaf Ekebom a bishop in the Swedish Lutheran Church and dean of the consistory in Gothenburg, without having seen or heard of the work survey... Since Swedenborg hadn't even sent it to Sweden yet... ...issues an attack on Swedenborg's writings, accusing them of heresy. This is the spark that leads to the Gothenburg heresy trial we explored in episode 32. Worth the listen. But Ekebom's attack wasn't in reaction to survey. A storm had already been brewing in Sweden. So, his friends were scared for him, 
thinking he'd be getting himself in trouble by publishing survey, but instead an attack against his theology comes out of left field in Sweden. What does Swedenborg do? He makes a strategic move no one expected, and one which historians have missed the importance of, but it might have been the most influential move of his theological career. What does Swedenborg do? He himself oversees a translation of survey into English and has it printed that same year. This is a true battle of words. You see, Ekebom's attack, at least in part, is in response to how friends of Swedenborg's in Sweden, who were supporters of his doctrinal views, had published works espousing new church teachings in Swedish, not Latin. So in the vernacular, they had made them accessible to the people. And that act challenged the power and authority of the clergy. That was taking it a step too far. Ekebom and others could more or less ignore Swedenborg's teachings as long as no one read them. But by making them available to the public in Swedish, you were subverting the power of the state church. And Ekebom comes out and charges Swedenborg's works for heresy in the hopes of stamping them out. So what does Swedenborg do? He ups the ante. As far as we know, he wasn't planning an English edition of Survey initially. He doesn't regularly translate his works into English. This was not a habit for him. With this English edition, he's aiming to make waves. And what better place to make waves than the country where there was a free press, England? But not only that, bring the work Survey to the people by publishing it in English. It's only speculation, but Ekebom's attack in Sweden seems to have prompted this. And here's the evidence. Swedenborg has only ever overseen English translations of his works once before, way back in the beginning of his theological phase in 1750, when the second volume of Secrets of Heaven he had translated into English and published in six separate chapters. Now, nearly 20 years later, he's calling on his same English translator, John Marchant, who had translated Secrets of Heaven, Volume 2, before. Right after publishing survey, Swedenborg writes to Bayer in a letter of March 15, 1769, that he plans to send several copies to people in Sweden. So remember, this is one week before Ekebom's attack. Most Reverend Herr Doctor, I have had the pleasure of receiving the Herr Doctor's welcome letter on the 23rd of November, 1768. That I have not answered it until now is because I wished to delay the answer until a little work had come out called Survey, wherein are fully exposed the errors of the hitherto accepted doctrines concerning justification by faith alone and concerning the imputation of the righteousness or merit of Christ. This treatise is being sent by me to all the priests in the whole of Holland, and will also go to the foremost priests in Germany. Okay, so Holland and Germany, those are on the list, but no England. I am thinking of sending 12 copies to the hair doctor by the first ship that goes from here. 
These the Herr Doctor will please give one to the Herr Bishop Lamberg, one to the Herr Dean Eckebaum, and the rest, except his own copy, to the lectors of theology and to the priests in the city. For no one can judge the work so well as one who has fundamentally entered into the secrets of justification. After the little work has been read by the Herr Dean, may it please the Herr Doctor kindly to request him to express his opinion on it in the consistory. All those here who are able and willing to see the truth will assent. Oh, man. So Swedenborg couldn't have been more wrong in how he anticipated the Dean Ekebom and uh, Bishop Lamberg to respond because Lamberg and Ekebom are the very ones who come out against him in just a week. But he doesn't know that yet, that that's about to happen. But at the same time, I have to admit, it sounds a little sarcastic there for him to say, no one can judge the work so well as one who has fundamentally entered into the secrets of justification. Like, is he sort of being, you know, putting a point on it? Like, you're the one so involved in this doctrine? I don't know what he was thinking. But it's practically like ships passing in the night, because only one week later, before Swedenborg even had the chance to mail the copies that he's written to Bayer saying he was going to send, Ekebom issues his attack. And Swedenborg hears of that pretty quickly because within a month, he writes to the Gothenburg consistory with his official response to the attack on April 15th and then sends a supplement to his response on April 22nd. And then the very next day, April 23rd, Swedenborg writes to Bayer again and it's clear his plans have changed. He tells him he's only sending him one copy of survey and for Bayer to keep it to himself. And now, for the first time, he's got plans to publish an English edition. Take it away, Curtis. I am sending herewith ten copies of my published treatise De Amore Conjugiali, which the hair doctor may sell, as occasion offers, at nine dollar copper mint per copy. This book is in great demand in Paris and in many places in Germany. Of the last published work, namely Survey, I am sending only a single copy, which the hair doctor will kindly keep for himself alone and not share it with anyone. For it makes a change in the whole theology which is now present in Christendom, and sets forth in some measure the theology which will come to be the theology of the new church. What is written therein, hardly anyone in Gothenburg will understand fundamentally, save the Herr Doctor. This little treatise has been sent to all the professors and clergymen in the whole of Holland and has already reached the foremost universities in Germany. Moreover, it will be turned into English in London and will also be published in Paris. Therefore, it must wait for judgment concerning it from abroad before being made generally known in Sweden. Until then, therefore, keep it for yourself alone. Mm, so his tune has changed. He's shifted his strategy. And the one key event that's happened between his two letters to Bayer, Ekebom's attack. Now, Swedenborg was planning on going to England anyway to publish his next work, Soul Body Interaction, in Latin. But apparently he's decided to publish an English edition of Survey while he's there as well. So he calls on Marchant, his translator, 
20 years later, Swedenborg is making waves and he's putting survey in the English vernacular. And we might not know his reasons, but it's clearly calculated. Yeah, what's amazing is that he's using the exact same tactic that provoked the attack in Sweden in England. Give the message to the people. Let them decide for themselves, not the clergy, what they think is true. And you know, it's, um, it's not only that. He's not only having survey translated into English. Um, so what I'm about to say is something scholars haven't discovered fully before. The NCE edition of survey is coming out in 2022, and the fresh research into this work has uncovered new evidence. Marchant's English edition of survey is not the same as the Latin edition. Swedenborg made changes to the manuscript. Gasp. 17 additions to the text. And part of that is an expansion to the very title of the work itself. Now, why? As we say, we don't know. But the context is suggestive that these changes were in response to the attack in Sweden. It may seem indirect, but it's a calculated tactic. Swedenborg knew survey would be going to battle, so he sharpens his words. His intent, it seems, is to give the greatest possible impact on the free-thinking populace of England. Think about it. There's a taste of revolution in the air. The War of Independence is brewing in America, and the tension in France leading up to the French Revolution is beginning. Swedenborg foresaw a theological revolution, and something in him, in this moment, upon hearing of the response of the clergy in Sweden, told him that revolution would happen by the people. It was a time when state churches still determined faith, but Swedenborg had a vision of a new era, a time when people would be empowered in their own faiths, when individual minds would be entrusted with spiritual understanding, and most of all, when faith and goodwill would be united within people in their faith. He anticipated a great spiritual revolution and evolution, and it seems his choice in publishing this English edition of Survey was calculated exactly to support that. Now, what were those editions? These editions have been lost to history until now, since later English editions of Survey only replicated the original Latin edition, and so they don't reflect the changes Swedenborg himself made to the text when it was translated into English. Wait! You're telling me that this is new material by Swedenborg that had been lost? Yes! 17 additions to the text and a handful of subtractions from it as it was presented in Latin. Yes, and the additions are not huge. They're not extensive. They total 542 words, but they are purposeful. And we have evidence that they were crafted by Swedenborg in Latin and then converted into English by Marchant. The first one, as I say, is the title. And it more than doubled the size of the original title. It added this following phrase, wherein is also demonstrated that throughout all the Christian world, the worshiping of three gods is received from the creed of Athanasius. So that's quite a claim. 
That's just fighting words. They, they just go. <laughs> it's, this is just, I'm going to crank up the confrontationalness of this. <laughs> yes, yes. The whole Christian world. Something you all have in common is you all believe in three gods. Well, it's a flex. It's a flex. He's trying to say, look, I can critique the core of this whole thing. Like I'm, I'm really going to try to establish myself in a position of power. And, and it's a wake up call. He's like trying to grab your attention, you know, like, Hey, guess what? You worship three gods. It's like, people are going to be intrigued to want to open that up and see what does he mean? In the rest of the editions, uh, that edition is very prominent on the title page. The rest are tucked here and there in the work. Hmm. And by and large, they show that he's aware of his new audience by adding extra remarks and clarifications sensitive to a truly public reception of the work. Mm. He adds additional references to the Book of Concord, which was a Lutheran statement of faith. He, most interestingly to me, adds more quotes from the epistles now, you know that in uh, back in Secrets of Heaven, he never quotes from the epistles hmm. and took some flack for this. Very interesting to see him at this juncture actually doubling the number of references in survey to the epistles with these additions. Hmm. And he clarifies at one point when he makes a claim about Protestants as a group— it's interesting, in the Latin, it just sort of sweepingly refers to Protestants, but in the English, he clarifies that he's referring to, oh, those Protestants who are confirmed in the doctrine of faith alone. It's not all Protestants. He, he needs to narrow it slightly. Oh, it's so interesting to just imagine him thinking about his English audience, like the English populace, the general public, interacting with these ideas, and so these are the changes he makes. Right. And the largest edition, and perhaps most interesting to me, is an interpretation of the famous Romans 3.28, which is a famous passage that's been used, a crucial keystone passage to support the idea that salvation is by faith alone, that man will be justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And he takes issue with that and has quite a long statement about it that he adds to this. And it is amazing, as you were saying, that this does not form any part of the tradition of the work in English. Nobody seems to have noticed and picked it up and, and kept those in the later English translations. And so do you know when he, when he makes his interpretation of Romans 3.28, he's obviously not taking issue with like, the Bible is wrong. He's just saying people have been interpreting this wrong all this time. Exactly. Uh, there's there's only two problems with that work, uh, the word faith and the idea of the works of the law. Uh, so yes. uh, the idea of faith doesn't mean the kind of imputative faith that if you just believe in Jesus, you will get all of his merit. You'll get right. credit for his crucifixion and all that. And People have taken the works of the law, apart from the works of the law, to mean apart from the Ten Commandments, you don't have to do the Ten Commandments anymore. And Swedenborg says, oh, no, that, that works of the law, that's talking about the 613 Mosaic laws, you know, not mixing meat and milk and laws about circumcision and all, all that. 
uh, it's been misinterpreted by those two points to make it say something very different than it actually says. Wow. Could be anticipating future attacks too. I'm going to head this off if someone's going to bring up Romans 3.28. Yes, yes. If someone's going to, I'm going to head this off that people are saying I don't quote the epistles enough. He is maybe in politics mode a little more. Yeah. Right. And back in Divine Providence, he first mentions Romans 3.28. It's the first time he ever mentions anything from the epistles. Hmm. Bit by bit, it seems over time, he's realizing, wait a minute, I can actually use this. This actually helps me. You know, if I am able to express a different interpretation of it, I can show that it's actually supportive of my argument and not the argument that the other side is making. Yeah. And another one of the editions intrigues me because it's the first instance ever of Swedenborg quoting a reference from the epistles, Epistle of John, that later becomes very heavily quoted in true Christianity and that's 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. It's the first time you ever see it is in these English editions. And then it wow. becomes like one of the greatest hits, in, you know, in, in true Christianity a couple of years later. This was its debut. Yeah. That's right. And nobody knew. Nobody's known for hundreds of years. That's right. And this quote reads, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know the truth, and we are in truth in his Son, Jesus Christ. This, meaning Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. So that plays very well, again, into his unified view of God. And so it's as if he kind of discovers this at this moment. And wait, that's great. I can use that. And he, and he puts it into these additions to survey. Mm. And it is interesting. He, when he writes his response to Echebaum's attack, he quotes a ton from the Book of Concord. And one of the things that he argues to Echebaum is he's saying, what I teach in New Church teachings doesn't go against the Christian faith at all. And he says, like, I believe in, you know, basically like a right understanding of the divine trinity. He references his own work, but then he references places even in the Book of Concord that support his interpretation, like the New Church interpretation of of the Divine Trinity. So it's one of those interesting misnomers to me that I think Swedenborg is most often referenced as being somebody or like a whole theological system that doesn't acknowledge the Divine Trinity when through survey and through his response to Dean Eckebaum's attack, he goes out of his way to be like, this is the divine trinity. Like, trust me, I am not deviating from the Christian faith. This is genuine Christianity here. So within the year, Swedenborg gets the English edition out in 1769. So that same year. And he doesn't do it alone. I mean, he's got Marchant translating it, but he's got support. He has two key friends that help him in his mission. The Reverend Thomas Hartley and Dr. Husband Messiter. Hartley was an Anglican minister, and Messiter was a physician. And it was on Swedenborg's trip to England to oversee the translation of survey that he meets Hartley and Messiter in person for the first time. They are these enormous fans of his work, and they go on to even help translate future works of his. And he gives them copies of survey in Latin when they meet. And it's so fascinating that we have evidence that they actually help him. They're active in helping him spread the English edition of survey in England. 
Mm. Messeter specifically sends letters that survive to doctors of divinity in the colleges of Edinburgh, Glasgow, and Aberdeen, which is interesting. Mm. You know, in, in the Presbyterian hotbed up in, up in Scotland. And at least these are the ones that we know of since those letters have survived. And Messeter is recommending the book to them. Ah, uh, and so on August 2nd, as far as I know, this is while the English edition is still underway or nearly finished, Thomas Hartley writes to Swedenborg, which gives us insight into this moment, imagining this time for Swedenborg in England. So first, Hartley in this letter shares some further thoughts from their previous conversations. And then at the close of the letter, he adds a request and an offer. He doesn't say so outright, but knowing the prospect of the impact of the English edition and the context of the storm that's going on in Sweden, Hartley seems to be addressing each of these respectively. Shall I read this? Please. There is no need of your answering the above by letter, for I have no wish to interrupt you, occupied as you are with matters of deep import. Pardon what is overmuch, and first, if perchance, after your departure from England, Dr. Messeter or I or both of us should be called on for a public defense of your writings mm. and should occasion arise for also defending you, their author, against some malevolent reviler who will seek to injure your reputation by thought-up lies, as is wont with the haters of truth, will it not be of use for repelling such false slanders and turning them to the disrepute of their author that you leave us with some particulars respecting yourself, such as degrees in the university, the public offices you have filled, your acquaintances and relatives, your honors, for I have heard that you have been thus honored, and all else that might serve to establish your good reputation, that so prejudices wrongly received may be removed. For all lawful means must be used that truth may not suffer injury. Okay, okay, pause there. Swedenborg does as Hartley wishes and writes a short bio of himself even while he's still in England. And this autobiographical statement is one of the most quoted letters in Swedenborgian history. And the reality is that its context is often overlooked. Hartley's request was in anticipation of survey's impact. So why did Hartley think Swedenborg would be attacked? because of survey, mm. like nothing else in Swedenborg's publications had gotten, you know, somebody like Hartley to be like, hey, write us this autobiographical statement to fend off these attacks that are probably coming down the road. It's like, no, they seem to be expecting an ad hominem attack against Swedenborg. And I'm thinking on account of this English translation of survey. Okay, continue. Second, if when you have returned to Sweden. Any persecution be set up against you on the part of the clergy, on the ground of religion, which, God forbid, I beg that you return to England, where you can rest in safety. Dr. Mesiter and I will provide a suitable place and home for you, either in the town or in the country, and in all things we will consider and do the best of our ability what will promote your comfort. To us, that will not be a trouble, but a delight. Mm. 
And there he's clearly suggesting that they have talked about the attack going on against Swedenborg in Sweden. So Hartley has paired both of these together. You can just imagine Swedenborg talking to Hartley, someone he trusts, about the intense moment that he's in and the choices he's making in response to his circumstances. And not only that, as it turns out, Swedenborg does take him up on his offer. After he finishes publishing True Christianity, instead of going back to Sweden, he travels to England for his final days, and his friends Hartley and Messeter are nearby. Mm. So the trial in Sweden peters out of its own accord. And as far as we know, there's no direct attack against Swedenborg in response to survey in England. But seeds were planted. The book was disseminated. It was uh, printed, by the way, by his longtime printer, Mary Lewis of Paternoster Row. The publication of survey was a turning point for Swedenborg. And it may seem like nothing happened, but how can you assess the effects of changed minds? I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to never miss when a new episode comes out. The NCE translations of the work survey will be coming out in 2022, as well as volumes three and four of Secrets of Heaven. If you've benefited from the work of the Swedenborg Foundation through Off the Left Eye and the New Century Edition, consider supporting us with a donation. We are a nonprofit and depend on the support of our donors. To give, go to Swedenborg.com donate. Thank you for listening.